Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So uh, we're going to start out with a program tonight that is about neuroscience, but I'm going to start out with a little warning proviso alert about cold weather and atrial fibrillation, some interesting statistics, and just a little caution. So first of all, most of you have heard of atrial fibrillation. It's an irregular heart rhythm. We also call that arrhythmia. And the heart has four chambers, the two upper atria and the ventricles. And the atria are supposed to beat and uh, in a nice rhythm, led by a pacemaker in the right atrium. In atrial fibrillation, the atria beat chaotically, uh, out of sync with the ventricles. And so what happens is that the ventricles just beat effectively when they get a chance, which is a secondary pacemaker takes over. And uh, because some of the beats don't get through that secondary pacemaker, what you end up with is an irregular ventricular beat. I won't get into the weeds on that, but the problem with it is is you lose about 15% of the effectiveness of your heart at rest, but when you're exercising that 15% less, and it's probably more than that, uh, you're not able to speed up your heart properly in response to exercise, so it's very exhausting. The Blood doesn't get pumped to the right place at the right time, and you can just find yourself crashing doing activities that you would ordinarily be able to do, like climbing up the stairs at your house, and you may actually find yourself feeling a little short of breath at rest. So what's the cold weather connection here? Well, in a 2015 published study, a meta-analysis of 15 studies looking at 125 patients Uh, was published recently in the Journal of Atrial Fibrillation, and it found that intermittent AFib occurs much more often in the winter and lowest in July. It drops off over the summer. Stroke risk in atrial fibrillation patients, whether they're intermittent or chronic AFib, persistent AFib, is about 19% higher in the winter than in the summer and about 10% higher in the spring. So this was a different study of uh, 290,000 patients. So if you have atrial fibrillation, either intermittent or constant, your risk of having a stroke goes up. Uh, Untreated atrial fibrillation that is constant increases the risk of a stroke by about five-fold. That's pretty substantial. Another important thing about atrial fib is that there's more of it occurring at younger ages than ever before. And that may in fact be because of wearable devices like smartwatches, where people are figuring out that they have a cardiac problem because their smartwatch tells them so. And so that may be the reason that we're seeing it occur uh, more often. Or there may be other things because, hey, the risk factors for atrial fibrillation are uncontrolled high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, sleep apnea, overweight and obesity, and of course, a family history of the disorder and alcohol. So this may account for part of the seasonal, and we are right here in the heart of Partyland, right? Start, Partyland starts in, well, Thanksgiving. We all probably have a few extra drinks to get through the Thanksgiving holidays, particularly if our families come to visit. Then you move into Christmas parties and office parties and getting together with friends. And of course, there's alcohol involved, maybe a little bit more than you would normally drink in a typical working week. And then comes New Year's Eve and New Year's. So you know, between the end of November and the end of the year, there's a lot more drinking. And in fact, the emergency rooms call it holiday heart syndrome, where someone will come in in atrial fibrillation who isn't an alcoholic and isn't normally, uh, hasn't suffered from it before, and they'll have 
their atrial fibrillation moment because they drank too much. So first of all, that's probably the first thing you can do to prevent atrial fib is don't drink too much. Uh, probably limiting your alcohol to, well, let's, let's be fair, somewhere around one drink a day on the average and try not to get more than three in any single 24-hour period. That's probably a fairly good threshold. There's some, a lot of different research using a lot of different paradigms, but that's kind of ballpark in the middle of what's healthy. Getting 150 minutes of aerobic exercise, that just means even walking, by the way, uh, per week. Having a heart-healthy diet, uh, limiting processed food and keeping the sugar down. So even if you do all of these things, this really reduces your risk, and there's like 500 papers that show that. But there are also drugs, and this is where we get into the weeds here. Don't wait. If you think you're having a heart arrhythmia, get it checked out, get an EKG, find out if you actually are having atrial fibrillation, because if you are, you do not want this thing to get momentum. Research shows that if we treat atrial fibrillation, let's say a holiday heart syndrome, from uh, right away, we consider that person at risk. We do the lifestyle modifications I've already described. Maybe we put them on a rate control drug like verapamil or a beta blocker. These, at even very low doses, substantially reduce the risk of developing chronic atrial fibrillation. And what I've learned from my cardiology colleagues is the the sooner that you stop the AFib, the better. So first we give you drugs, and if that doesn't work, we do conversion. Nowadays we have uh, fairly rapidly acting anticoagulations uh, drugs, so we don't usually convert people immediately. We'll make them take those drugs for a couple of days to get their blood thinned and hopefully get rid of any clots that might already be in their heart. Because the problem is when you have fibrillation, that blood in the atria isn't really moving. It's kind of sitting there. And you know what happens to blood when it sits? Mm, Yeah, it it cross-links and it clots. And in that situation, what you've got when you restore a normal heartbeat, is you've got the atria actually coughing out that clot like a cat coughs out a hairball into the general circulation, out where it basically leaves the heart and journeys into the lungs, where it can cause, uh, if if the clot is in the right heart, it's going to cause maybe an infarct in the lung, but if the clot is in the left heart... Oh boy, then it's going to cause a stroke potentially. So we want to thin out the blood, reduce the chances that there's any clot in there, and then we hit it with the paddles. You've all seen the paddles. This isn't the clear uh, 911 paddle. We actually have to synchronize the paddles so that we actually are in tune with what's going on in the ventricle. If we don't do that, we might actually put someone into ventricular fibrillation. Oh gosh, I'm try there was a movie with Julia Roberts a long 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 time ago where she was a medical student and they they was a crazy movie they were actually putting themselves into ventricular fibrillation by shocking their hearts and then they would uh you know go on a near death experience and then they would come back they would resuscitate each other and they got into a contest of how long could I stay dead before I died And it was, you know, it was a crazy premise on the movie, but this is true. You can actually kill somebody with those paddles that actually also give life. It's kind of ironic. Anyway, we've got some new techniques that actually cure atrial fibrillation. It's called ablation. It's been around for about 15 years now, and they've finally gotten pretty good in it. And it's very similar to the sort of stenting that gets done if you have a blockage in your heart arteries, except the tube that's threaded up into the heart actually goes into the left atrium. And from there, it they essentially burn a little round donut hole, using very precise little bits of rapidly vibrating electricity. This is uh, electrocautery, and uh, it's radio 
electrocautery, I should say. So when you do that, you somehow stop the fibrillation from being able to happen. It's amazing. I've seen images of it, and I uh, have personal experience with someone walking in with atrial fib and walking out without it uh, a couple of hours later. And they are actually doing this on a moving heart and accurately hitting the right spot to achieve this level of eye-hand coordination is one of the miracles of over-engineering of the human brain. So now we get to do the live cold, uh, or I guess we call it hot mic radio, where I'm going to read the email and then give you an answer. I just received a report from an abdominal ultrasound that was done recently. It ended by saying impression negative, no acute uh, abnormality. However, the third sentence of the report was this, heterogenicity of the intrahepatic echo texture, suggesting hepatic steatosis or intrinsic hepatocellular disease. So could you please explain to my 78-year-old layperson self what that means? And is this an indication that I need further testing? If yes, what kind? Thank you in advance for any light you might shed on this. And I wish you a terrific and wonderful holiday season. Thank you, Elizabeth, in Pacific Grove. And I will certainly attempt, uh, Dawn will attempt to shed light on the situation. So it's kind of ironic because intrahepatic, uh, hepatic steatosis, this is fatty liver disease. And of course, uh, intrinsic hepatocellular disease means that you've got cirrhosis. So they're saying that they see abnormalities in the, in the texture of the liver. And the liver should have a very homogeneous, smooth texture. And if you see lumpiness, kind of a tapioca, yeah, imagine vanilla pudding versus tapioca pudding, and you'll get an idea of what that looks like on the ultrasound screen. That's actually a pretty good description of the difference. So the loss of that smooth texture could be fat, that's the steatosis, or it could be scar, and that would be the cirrhosis. And I would bet that hepatic steatosis is the cause here, unless you have a history of either pretty severe hepatitis A uh, or like laid up for three or four months kind of hepatitis A or hepatitis B or hepatitis C. If you are at 78, you should have been tested at least once for hepatitis C. We're trying to go back and get everyone who went through, who lived through the 70s uh, and check them because there was a, well, a lot of, let's just say, behavior going on that could have led to uh, you're getting hepatitis C, plus we weren't screening the blood supply for it, so that includes a perfectly in- innocent uh, transfusion in a lifelong virgin. So nobody is really exempt. We don't get the hepatitis C test until I think think about 1985 or thereabouts. So any blood transfusion before that, we used to call it transfusion-associated hepatitis, in fact, because that's how it was mostly spread. But then again, the 60s, we had widespread increase in people experimenting with drugs, particularly injectables, went fairly went up. And I'm not sure if it stayed up. I think it's probably fluctuated, but we are definitely in the soup now. So not to digress too far, I would recommend you get an ultrasound. And these, this ultrasound is a special kind of ultrasound that is looking for scarring of the liver, and you'll get a score. And if uh, you have mild liver deposits in, mild fat deposits in your liver, you'll get a low score. And we change your diet. We look for diabetes. We make sure that you take the sugar out of your diet, possibly give you some metformin, and over, over a couple, uh, get you know, you get off starch and sugar and wait six months, and most people's liver, if it's mild, will simply recover. If you are a drinker, I would tell you to stop drinking and give your liver a break, and I would get, tell you to take alpha-lipoic acid and a couple of other things. And you can maybe send me an email about that. So we're going to pick up that next caller, and I believe that's going to be online, too. Let's try. Hello, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, hello, Dr. Don. Hello. Who am I talking to? 
Uh, Jean in Pacific Grove. Jean in Pacific Grove. Hello. Nice to talk with you. And do you have a question or a comment? Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Uh, the question is about the RSV vaccine. Okay. I'm over 60. My wife's over 60. She has one kidney. She's got allergies. And I don't care about me, but her. What do you think? Uh, you should care about you, too, because she needs you. <laughs> So just saying. Now, is she, I just have to ask, is is she a born this way one kidney or did she, uh, or is she a really no, no, generous no, person? They, they took it out. They took it out when she was young. They, before they would save a kidney, they took it out long, long time okay. ago. Well, what that means if it was done when she was a young, younger, like, let's say, under teenager. 30. Yeah, teenager. Yeah, she no. she grew that kidney, the the one that's left. And she's probably got normal kidney function because she grew that puppy up to yes, double it, double its size. So, yes. uh, so she's not really at additional risk from RSV. This would be a person where I any drug that was toxic to the kidney, I'd, I'd still be nervous about mm-hmm. giving. But in terms of her ability to process drugs, she's fine. It's just that you know, if you kill that one, if you hurt that one well, kidney, she does, have, she does have asthma. And there you have it. Yes, she needs RSV. Oh. Not even a question. And so do you, because you don't want to vector it home to her. See, <laughs> when when I see RSV, yep, yeah, you you would be like the little mosquito with the malaria in his in his salivary gland, and you might not even be sick. But the the RSV, when you see it in a kid, it actually looks like asthma. It looks like wow. suddenly the kid has asthma. It tightens the airways. And, Whoa. you know, it's a virus. It gets in there. It tightens the airways. If you've got yep. a tendency to tight airways, this will set you off. So now that we have a RSV vaccine, yeah, you should do it. I think a uh, lot of those we, acute asthma exacerbations I've seen twenty for, over the last 20 years where, oh, it's a viral, virally in, um, induced asthma exacerbation. A lot of those are probably RSV. It's not like we bothered to test for it because we didn't have any additional treatment. So why bother to test? But I think it was, you know, right there under the radar. Uh, and now we've got a vaccine. Okay. So there's no good reason not to get the vaccine. Okay. So both of us should get the RSV. And uh, I'll, I'll get the RSV first because it's my sweetheart. And uh, then I'll get my first pneumonia shot after that two weeks later. You know, the RSV and the pneumonia shot, you could probably get together. They would, they would play well together. I'm not doing that. All right. I know. That's okay, too. But uh, you don't want to be sick at New Year's. But, yeah, I think, uh, oh, and and by the way, really good way to avoid vaccine complications is uh, you get the vaccine in the morning, and then yeah. at night you take a hot bath with Epsom salts and sit in there until your sweat's pouring off your face. <laughs> Boy, you're sounding like when I was a child. You know, some of that stuff from when you were a child... It's it's like legit stuff. It really is. It's just it got it, you know we all got all scientific and put on our white coats and got snooty about those those old home remedies. But when you go back and test them, chicken soup, for example, turns out that specifically chicken soup has some some very interesting antiviral compounds. Plus, it's a mucolytic, which means it it helps with congestion. This is like biochemistry. So. You know, things oh, that she, she makes chicken soup for us, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful, even when you don't have a cold. Okay, I got one more question for you. Sure, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a book question for you. Ready? I'm ready. Lessons in chemistry. Okay, is that you know, a book? Do you know the book? That's a book. I do not know the book. Who wrote it? Uh, Bunny. Oh, it's I don't have it in front of me. It's a, I got it out of the library. Uh-huh. It's one of the New York Times. Notable books from last year, and it's got more chemistry, and more, uh, you'll love it. I probably will. I'm one of those weird people who loves biochemistry. People look, people look at me, and they roll their oh, eyes. I hate it. You know, it is. Go. Yes, go ahead. No, you go. It is throughout the book. I couldn't believe it. It's. Uh, let me tell you who wrote it. Bonnie Garmus, G A R M U S. All right. What do you love about the book? Uh, well, I'm a science nerd myself, except that I'm not very good at it. But 
when I find it, I love it. I'm a philosophy nerd and a science nerd. She's got the science in there. You, It will knock your socks off. All right. Well, I like to have my socks knocked off by science on a regular basis. So thank you very much for the recommendation. I will definitely look it up in the library. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Normally what I do is I get the book out at the library, and then if I love it too much, then I have to go and get the book. Then I have to go buy it. And I always like buy it used because I read it used, and it's cheaper. And I know maybe I should just buy it new, but I don't because I buy so many of them. All right, we've got time for our first neurological story, and this is a pretty interesting story. Uh, This comes out of a paper that uh, was written by a collaboration between Stanford University neurosurgeon Jamie Henderson and uh, co-author Nicholas Schiff from Weill Cornell Medicine. They used a brain implant Uh, And I not pulled the the main article. This is from a news article. But it's a new brain implant that's being put down around near the hippocampus. And it's been so successful in restoring function to people with traumatic head injuries that after the study, several patients in the clinical trial refused to, to have it turned off because they were doing so much better. Now, we know that traumatic brain injuries is a huge epidemic. More than 5 million Americans have had them, some of them left unable to focus on simple tasks or prone to sharp mood changes. And early trials with the same simulation device, it boosts neural activities between regions of the brains, were conducted on these five participants, describing it, uh, it's as if the lights had been dimmed and there wasn't enough electricity to turn them back up. After 90 days, all of the participants were able to resume activities that they hadn't been able to do for years. Years. Hear that? Such as reading books, watching TV, playing video games, and they felt less fatigued. Mental processing speeds improved by an average of 32%. The therapy was so effective, as we said, that three, uh, three out of the five refused to turn it off. <laughs> they said, nope, I'm keeping this puppy. I'm finally back. Our next story is about singing to your baby. And singing to your infant isn't just a good way to momentarily calm its screaming. Uh, It may also be critical for teaching the child how to master language. This is really interesting. It's the conclusion of a new study that challenges the conventional view that infants learn language by mimicking small sounds, like individual letters, and then stringing those together to make words. In fact, researchers say, learning actually starts with understanding the rhythm of speech, which explains the children books and Dr. Seuss, right? The researchers recorded the brain activity of 50 infants. It's amazing that we can record the brain activity non-invasively in children while these infants were watching a video of someone singing nursery rhymes and in their first 12 months, three different stages, And they found that the babies only started processing individual sounds at around seven months because we could see what part of the brain was was working. And it was slow even then. But they very quickly learned to recognize patterns in a language. For example, they might learn that the rhythm pattern of English words is typically strong, weak, as in daddy or mummy, says study author Guashami from the University of Cambridge. They use their rhythm pattern to guess where one word ends and another begins. And that's how they begin to understand speech. So step one, and you think about it. I've been, I I read a book recently about an old Lord Peter Whimsey mystery. And uh, it had a lot about coding and how to make code. And one of the things about codes is they're a long string of letters without spaces. And part of the trick of decoding or decrypting Uh, something is to figure out where the words begin and end. So indeed, if talk about learning to decode something, what more challenging neurologic task can there be to learn a language, learn what sounds actually are language and what are noise from the ground up with no prior information? It's pretty amazing.
And it's pretty amazing, like many of the things I'm going to tell you this week. Our next neurological story looks at traumatic memory and why trauma feels like it's happening real time and what to do about it. A new study scanned the brains of 28 people with PTSD. This included rape survivors and combat veterans. While they listened to taped narrations of their own memories, some neutral, some sad, and some traumatic, previously recorded uh, in their own voice. The neutral and the sad memories activated the hippocampus, which is part of the brain that organizes memory. But the traumatic memories activated a completely different area of the brain, the posterior cingulate cortex, part also part of the deep brain, but involved more in thought. This appears to provide a biological explanation of why PTSD sufferers recall their trauma so intensely. And, of course, there are therapeutic implications. The findings lend support to treatments like EMDR and tapping, in which PTSD patients are directed to revisit traumatic experiences so that they can relegate them to the past. You're actually helping the patient rewire their memory when you do the EMDR, you're helping them construct something that they're experiencing as happening right now into something that happened before, consolidating into the hippocampus. Effectively, I think therefore I am, if I can access a memory, then I know it's a memory, and then I know it's not happening to me right now, so I'm safe. Really interesting how we can reprogram our brains for better or for worse. Uh, Speaking of reprogramming, we're going to depart from uh, neurology for just a moment and give out another alert. Uh, This is about hair products. And it's it's a good example of why we have to test things by in the way that they are used and not just test them. Like if if you're testing something for, for safety and you, put it in a cell culture and you you know put it on animals and nothing happens so you're like okay good you may be missing the boat here the creams and sprays that we use to style our hair may release toxic chemicals only when they're heat, heated by curling wands and straightening irons right so so many hair products contain I mean, this is a mouthful it's a type of molecule the group name is cyclic volatile methyl siloxanes and that's going to make your hair shiny and hold its position. Previous research in mice has shown that these compounds, when they're inhaled, cause damage to the liver, lungs, respiratory tract, and nervous system. But they weren't originally looked at that way because it's not a problem when you say, well, these hairs are going to be applied to the hair as a gel or a leave-in conditioner. The problem comes when these these deposits on your hair are heated, and that was never tested. A new study in a team led by Purdue University, measured CVMS emissions as volunteers used their usual sprays and oils in combination with heated hair tools. What they found was a very sharp spike in airborne uh, volatile methyl siloxanes, very sharp, and the highest emissions for for longer hair and for tools that operated at higher temperatures. That makes sense. And the pollutants, this was indoor pollution, it cleared in about 20 minutes uh, with the use of an extractor fan, which, of course, we all have in our bathrooms and run for 20 minutes after we style our hair. But over time, everyday hair routines could have long-term impacts on inhalation exposures. And I have a lot of patients out there who are mildly environmentally sensitive. They don't have severe chronic fatigue. They aren't just wiped out. But if they go into a tire store or one of those cheap shoe stores where they sell where the shoes where you walk in and you know you're in a cheap shoe store, if they go into one of those places, they get a headache or they itch this or their nose runs. These are individuals who potentially would really be at risk for this. So, you know, sorry to put a kink in your style, or rather maybe take a kink out of your style, depending what you're doing with your hair product uh, and your heat device, but maybe we need to think about having a fan and treating this the way we might treat uh, paint 
or something like that, like spray paint, use in a well-ventilated space. Well, most of us aren't using our hair products uh, and our heat devices in a well-ventilated space. So maybe we need to rethink that strategy of ours. Anyway, certainly uh, worth putting it out there along with the AFib because, again, this is news that you can use, and I always try to sprinkle our program with that. Our next story is a bit of a deep dive on uh, the immune system and postpartum depression. And there's quite a lot of biochemistry, so um, I'm sure our friends in Pacific Grove will be happy with that. Uh, So we talked a few months ago about postpartum depression when the FDA approved a pill, a drug specifically for this condition that showed promise working rapidly. When it does work, it works quickly, which is key because our antidepressants don't always work either and they take a month and that's a month of suffering and a month of suicide risk. That drug was called Zerzuve and it is available. How does it work? It's a neuroactive steroid that mimics a natural metabolite of the hormone progesterone. See, that's one of the things that's important to understand about biochemistry. We identify something like a hormone, but when you break down that hormone, that's still a molecule that has biological activity. And of course, let's talk about Tylenol overdose, right? You break down the Tylenol into a toxic molecule. The Tylenol itself is not toxic, but if you take too much of it, more than your liver can process, that toxic metabolite sits around and, well, basically burns the liver and causes damage. Now, let's move back to the baby blues. 700,000 Americans a year experience this uh, severe, prolonged, debilitating depression during or after a pregnancy, marked by hopelessness, disinterest, and in rare cases, psychosis, uh, often called peripartum uh, depression, rather than uh, postpartum because it can happen before pregnancy, and about a third of cases begin during pregnancy. And these feelings can persist for even years. Definitely interferes with bonding and caretaking, sets up a legacy of disconnection and misunderstanding that can just roll through the generations. And suicide, by the way, accounts for 20% of deaths of women in the immediate postpartum period, in the year after they deliver that baby. Lots of suicide. Uh, Really, really substantial. So what's going on here? And scientists researching on it are saying that inflammation and the immune system, particularly the microglia, play a much larger role than has been previously understood. So there's dramatic remodeling of the brain during pregnancies, and there's also dramatic remodeling of the immune system. And these things can crash into each other. Uh, In fact, most researchers consider pregnancy to be like just another critical period of brain development, like being a newborn or being an adolescent. The changes are that big and that substantially hard to weather. Uh, Immune changes are one of the most important changes that occur in the body to make sure that you can be pregnant. A lot of early pregnancy loss is because the immune system actually is attacking this, what it sees as a foreign invader, because the surface of the baby is covered with markers that don't match the mother. It's, It's a foreign It's a foreign substance growing in your body, and you have to train your immune system to tolerate it. So during the first trimester of pregnancy, there's actually increased inflammation because that helps implant the embryo. And in the second part of the trimester, as these tissue surface antigens begin to be apparent and get into the maternal circulation through the placenta, the immune system shifts to an anti-inflammatory role that helps prevent an attack on the now rapidly growing different fetus, different from mom. We know that autoimmune disease often remits during pregnancy. Women with multiple sclerosis, for example, classically get better during pregnancy because this immune, the immune system actually calms itself down 
and there's less autoimmunity. But in the very last part, as labor approaches, the immune system gets ready to fight any bacteria that may get into the uterus during uh, delivery. It, inter- it wants to be able to respond to the prostaglandins that are going to promote uterine correct, uh, contraction, so it upregulates the Cox pathway. And this is all very adaptive to be sure that you deliver a healthy fetus. But prolonged inflammation and immune activity releases a lot of inflammatory cytokines, things like IL-1 and IL-10, and excuse me, IL-1 and IL-6. And these cytokines, we heard about them during COVID, that's the cytokines that make the cytokine storm. And surprise, they're small molecules and they can pass into the brain triggering neuroinflammation. There's a school of thought that thinks that pregnancy-related depression is an especially potent example of the inflammatory subtype of depression due to these profound changes in immune activity. In one recent study, researcher Lena Brunden found increased inflammatory cytokines in the blood were associated for for severe and suicidal peripartum depression. And another study, it found that certain immune cells that are suppressed during pregnancy do not rebound properly after childbirth in women who developed uh, peripartum depression. So it's not just an excess of inflammatory cytokines. It's actually a deficiency in regulatory cells. And regulation, immune regulation, of course, as we're now beginning to understand, is an extremely challenging and uh, very, very subtle nuanced process. Plus, you've got some multipliers, disruption of sleep and elevated stress. That's common in all mothers nurturing a newborn. These are also known to increase those cytokines, those very same IL-1 and IL-6. So, you know, think about this dysregulation, okay? We see this same thing in chronic fatigue syndrome, or also known as chronic chronic inflammatory response syndrome or myalgia encephalitis, right? Got that itis there. We see it in fibromyalgia, which is also associated with with inflammation in the pain centers. And it all really boils down to the microglia, the brain's resident immunocells. These are not just immune cells. These are necessary for sculpting brain circuits. These are actually editors, and they prime the mother's brain for motherhood. In fact, we've done research in animals, finding that late in pregnancy and postpartum, uh, there's a marked decrease in microglia in the brain, particularly in areas important for microglia, for maternal care and mood uh, regulation. And they think this decline in the microglia initiates maternal behavior. So they tested that, and they found that uh, female rats who weren't pregnant could be induced to act like a mother rat for another rat's pups, something they would never do. Rats don't adopt other people's, other animals' pups. But if you depleted their microglia, they basically went crazy for those babies, those foreign babies, and acted like mama. So when we look in humans, the brains of stressed moms look different. Uh, We have looked in rats because we can like stick needles into their brains. And we found that there are many more inflammatory microglia in their brains uh, if they're stressed. And so we think that elevated microglia could be contributing to this peripartum depressive symptoms. And here we get to a metabolite called kynurenine, which I'm going to explain to you how this ties in. Kyurinine helps give our brain and our body energy when it's under stress and when the immune system is activated. But it does that at the expense of producing serotonin. And we can take a look at kyurinine in simple urine organic acid testing. And we can see that it's intimately affected by pregnancy. The placenta, which of course is a new organ that we grow expressly to be pregnant and then and then basically cough out uh, after the baby because we no longer need it anymore, the immune assist, uh, uh, activity of the placenta is huge and it has enzymes that promote this kynurenine production. 
Now, let's go. Let's let's climb up the the biochemistry here a little bit. I told you I love biochemistry. This is one I've been puzzling over for a few years and having difficulty understanding. And this article, plus going and looking at the biochemical pathway again, really made me understand what's going on here. So let me walk you through it. There's a type of testing called organic acid testing. This is something that naturopathic physicians do all the time. You can do it with blood or you can do it with urine. And we're looking at the breakdown products of things that come out in the urine. So, for example, you get kynuric acid in the urine, and you also get something called quinolinic acid in the urine. But if, but if you start out with tryptophan, right, that's the one that you get from the turkey that helps you sleep, the 5-hydroxytryptophan uh, that you can buy at any health food store. But it's also, tryptophan is also the basic building block for serotonin just as cholesterol is the basic building block for estrogen and testosterone and cortisol, the so-called steroid hormones, tryptophan is critical to not being depressed, to being uh, appropriately uh, emotive for the situation. And if you upregulate kynurenine, if you if you say, okay, we're going to make more of uh, I'm sorry, it's not anine, it's kynurenine, uh, not anine. It's, if you need more of that, because you need more energy, uh, you're going to pull that away from the making of serotonin. In other words, you're competing for the substrate. And that'll come out in the urine as kyn- kynurenic acid, which is great because we can measure it. But why, where is it going? Well, it's going down a pathway to make NAD nicotinamide. You know that NAD, that nicotinamide uh, stuff that's all the rage that they're trying to sell you, the NA, the the nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, that's the the next step up the chemical pathway. You end up with NAD. NAD plus is the energy, mm, let's just say it's like the gas, it's one of the major energy sources for biochemistry. And it's critical for the immune system and the activation of a lot of behavior. Not surprisingly, B6, one of the B vitamins, also very much associated with cognition and dementia, this particular pathway. If you if you are stealing the if you're stealing the tryptophan that you're eating to make this NAD, which your body needs, it's critical then you're not going to make, be able to make as much serotonin necessarily because you won't have enough tryptophan. This is probably one of the reasons why tryptophan or 5-hydroxytryptophan really helps with depression in some individuals. It's very complicated. Everything acts on everything else. There's all these biochemical intermediates and it's it's just looking it's like looking at a tangle of colored yarn when you first see the biochemical pathways. You really have to work through them and that takes some education and some effort. But it's just fascinating to see this dance of chemicals. At least it's fascinating to me. And to tie it to to testing this, we could do organic acid testing. And if we see elevated kynurenine or kynurenic acid, that would be a woman who was at increased risk for peripartum depression. I'm pulling these things together and saying, they're doing blood testing. They're starting to think about looking at this. But we already have a tool sitting there in the armamentarium of natural medicine or functional medicine, as I like to call it. Uh, and what is this but function, right? How things actually work. And too much over here and not enough over there. And can we fix it? And at least if we knew the women were at increased risk, we could take steps. We could, for example, give them tryptophan, which is just an amino acid. We could affect them positively, maybe give NAD plus or, uh, or in, in order to reduce the demand so that more things could go off to serotonin. There's a lot, there's a lot here, but I would love to see a study looking at these organic acids. I think this is a study that should be done. And I doubt that the researchers actually know that there's a, that there's a clinical, relatively inexpensive hundred bucks test out there that they could be doing on their next cohort. I'll have to give them a call 
or rather send them an email and make sure that they know that these tests exist. Maybe that'll be my little contribution to science this year. Go on to our next story, this one about nerve stimulation for stroke recovery. We talked about traumatic brain syndrome earlier. Uh, this, This brain stimulation is implanted in the vagus nerve. This is the vagus nerve stimulator. It's been used in Parkinson's disease, and uh, we know that it influences the it influences the ba- brain's ability to help Parkinson's. If you get it in the right place, you can help Parkinson's patients move more re- more readily. That's awesome. In February of this year, uh, I'll tell you about Kathy Reynolds. So she was unable to use her right hand. She had a stroke in 2020, so she's very far out. She's done all the physical therapy. At this point, medical science just shrugs its children and say, can't do anything uh, more. You're just you're going to look at adaptive strategies here, lady. You're not going to regrow any brain cells. Well, putting this device in her brain, uh, or in her vagus nerve, rather, uh, this vagus nerve stimulator, allowed her to send mild electric pulses to the vein, and she went back to doing lots of physical therapy. We know that it raises the levels of neurotransmitters, but it also helps the brain build new pathways. So uh, this research coming out of The Lancet, looking at 108 stroke survivors using vagus nerve stimulation, a FDA-approved technology right there on the the shelf, up to 60% of stroke survivors uh, improved. So it took a lot of hard work. They had uh, to do three 90-minute sessions per week for six weeks, plus daily sessions at home, repeating the arm and hand movements that they needed for everyday tasks hundreds of times a day. And the vagal nerve stimulation doubled the amount of improvement. It just acted as a sort of antenna and... It helped about, as I said, 60% of the users responded, which is kind of on a par with what we see in Parkinson's. It's not a slam dunk that it's going to work, but it works pretty darn well, and it is exciting to see what's become what's becoming available for these previously untreatable chronic diseases. We've got stuff that can make the paralyzed walk. We've got stuff that can fix or at least help people with with PTSD, rewire their brains non-invasively. We've got knowledge about how we can screen for uh, peripartum depression during pregnancy and identify people at increased risk. And we've got vagus nerve stimulation for stroke recovery even years after the stroke. We've also got smartwatches. And uh, researchers recently published a study of 103,000 people, and they wore a smartwatch for just a week, then those who went on to develop Parkinson's disease showed signs that were looked at. They had shown signs of a unique slowing of movement that was picked up by the smartwatch seven years before it could be picked up by a doctor. So we might be able to screen for Parkinson's by just having a person wear essentially a a variant on a smart smartwatch that would let uh, us know that they're headed for trouble. By the way, there's a strong connection with alpha-synuclein in the gut, so we could also con- we could also be looking for that. And when we see that, we could initiate therapies that would help them process this protein that's abnormal and is accumulating. We could also re- take uh, do therapies that would reduce the amount of it being produced in the intestines because we think that Parkinson's disease, at least partially, is this alpha-synuclein migrating up the vagus nerve. Yep, there it is again, that vagus nerve, very connected to everything in the brain. We might be able to actually treat the disease before it even happens, and wouldn't that be amazing? So I talked about baby talk earlier, Let's talk about the universality of baby talk. If you've ever found yourself saving, oh, you cute little thing, you're so cute, oh, oh, little baby. Uh, the new study shows that using a sing-song tone of voice with infants appears to be a universal 
human behavior all around the world. They looked at uh, 1,600 voice recordings, 410 patients, six continents, 18 language, and they were from all over. We had hunter-gatherers in Tanzania to metropolitan tiger moms in Beijing. And in every one of the cultures, the parents spoke baby talk. They tended to speak in this higher pitch, very high variability. What did we say earlier about rhythm and how that's the first thing that babies learn language from? Well, we instinctively know that. And it is an instinct, by the way. Uh, So in an online game that the researchers uh, created, participants could tell with about 70% accuracy when a song or a passage of speech in a foreign language was being aimed at babies. Just by listening to the tonality and the rhythm, uh, someone listening to Swahili could tell if you were talking to a baby more than two-thirds of the time. And that's pretty amazing. So let's see. We've got time for just one last quick story. I'm going to just do this one. It is not neurologic. Maybe you're happy about that. Uh, This is about exercise and sitting. Uh, This was uh, 1,200 people in Norway, Sweden, and the U.S., and what they did was monitor, they wore movement detection sensors for two years. They found those who had sat more than 12 hours a day at a 38% chance of, a higher chance of premature death than those who sat for eight hours, but they could completely offset by exercising 22 minutes a day. So if you're sitting in a chair for more than eight hours and you just get up and walk for 20 minutes, you don't have a, you get rid of that 38% increased risk of sudden death. And this is a very, very low uh, activity. Walking up a hill, walking, you know, gardening, nothing, nothing too much, nothing that's going to even make you break a sweat. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or Follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.